When you hear the word fellowship, what comes to your mind? Maybe you picture people sitting around in a living room enjoying each other's company, or maybe you picture a pizza party or in a coffee shop just having a good time with someone else. The reality is that those things are elements of fellowship, having fun together, having time together is healthy for a church. But fellowship is far more, it's much deeper in meaning than just socializing or hanging out. I love J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. So if you know me, then you already know that I love Lord of the Rings. And the, the book, movie, Fellowship of the Ring, this Fellowship of the Ring was a group of nine people, friends, that committed to doing something. They, they committed themselves to destroy the one ring of power by taking it to the dark land of Mordor and casting it into the fires of Mount Doom where it was forged by the dark lord Sauron to save Middle-earth from evil and disaster. And so this fellowship of the ring, this fellowship was a journey, a life or death all-in Endeavor that had great evil and opposition that was overwhelming. And that it looked as though it just was never going to happen. Where, where good could not prevail, but with all of them together maintaining their fellowship, they could then save Middle Earth. See, fellowship is captured beautifully by author Tolkien with this powerful story. See, fellowship is much more like brothers on a battlefield in a war zone where there are real bullets flying overhead. That is fellowship, biblically, because we are in a true spiritual battle with overwhelming opposition. And we have an enemy who is a roaring lion seeking to devour the people of God. And there are real casualties in this spiritual battle. And fellowship is being brothers in arms in the battle far more than some friends hanging out on a golf course just chilling. And yet a lot of times I think that as believers we can get comfortable and we can actually forget that our fellowship is because we are in a real battle. And this is no golf course, or country club existence. What exactly is fellowship? If you want to pin it down to its definition, its meaning, what is fellowship? And why is it so important for disciples of Jesus? Let's read about that together in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Philippians 1, 3 through 11. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers of me of grace, both in my imprisonment of the gospel, 
in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. This powerful, beautiful text describes fellowship. The original word that we use for fellowship in the Greek, it's koinonia. It's translated fellowship. Sometimes it's translated partnership or sharing. And so here in verse 5, it says partnership in the gospel. That word is fellowship. It's the same word, koinonia. So some translations have the word fellowship. The ESV has the word partnership. It's the same thing. It has the same meaning. And so fellowship is sharing something in common. Now, those of us from different countries, we have similar interests. So Americans who like to watch football... No, I didn't say soccer, but Americans who like to watch American football, this is an exciting week because it, it, it begins, it launches this week, it kicks off as we would describe it. And so Americans, especially guys who love football, are going to be talking about football and, and they share that same love for a game that's called football when you don't use your feet very much in it. But I digress, there's a love for it. But if you talk to South Africans, the weather is going to be getting good here pretty soon, and they sure love for bride, and they can't wait to stand around the fire and eat meat off the fire, which I've learned to love doing that, where you burn your fingers, but it's so good. And so I have learned to share that love with my fellow South Africans who love to bride. Whatever it is, we all have things that we share in common, that we enjoy, that in a sense bring us together and we fellowship around that. But as believers, our fellowship, what we share in common, is far more than enjoyment of cultural realities. What we share in common is that the deepest possible level of human relationship and experience what we share is our experience of God. We have the same Father. We are one with our Father in heaven. We share the same King Jesus that we bow down to and who has saved us. We share the same Spirit. We are one, one Spirit that binds us all together. And so what we share is that we all know God. We have fellowship with God, and so therefore we have fellowship with each other. And so fellowship among believers is one of the main ways that the Spirit of God changes us to then reflect the character of God in our thoughts, our desires, our words, and even our actions. So the primary truth, the main idea from Philippians 1 that we just read is that Christ-centered fellowship displays the glory of God. And so we want to better understand what it looks like to have Christ-centered fellowship that is a display, a reflection, a manifestation of the very glory and character of God. You see, when in the church, when, when you share your 
life with others. When you give yourself to other people, to your brothers and sisters, when you care about other people's well-being more than your own comfort, when, when you partner with other people to accomplish the mission that our master gave to us, you will never be the same. You do that, you'll be changed. I guarantee it. On the authority of God's word, I can say that with complete confidence that you cannot experience this level of fellowship that we're describing and stay the same. And so let's consider fellowship that displays the glory of God. Number one, it's marked by passionate prayer. And so fellowship that displays God's glory is passionate in prayer. And so fellowship that is showing who God is is done by people who pray. You see it here in Philippians 1, 3 through 11. Paul writes this letter to church in Philippi, and he says that he is praying for them. Verses 3 and 4. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. So he says, I thank God for you, always in every prayer. I'm praying for you with joy. And then verses 9 through 11 at the end of this paragraph, which is one long sentence in the original language, what you see here says, and it is my prayer. And so he's describing that he's praying for them. And then at the end, he specifically tells them how he's praying for them, what he's praying for them to experience. And so this whole section, this text, is Paul praying before God for his beloved brothers and sisters in the city of Philippi. And so fellowship that is glorifying to God is marked by passionate prayer. And so Paul had his thoughts constantly focused on thanksgiving and praise. So he's thanking God for the people. Before he asks for anything, which he does at the very end, he does make requests on behalf of them. He, first, he thanks God. And so our prayers ought to be marked by praise, adoration, thanksgiving before we ask anything of our God. Just like Jesus prayed, you see this here with Paul. He valued them. He had such a high regard for them. And he, he says that they're on his mind all the time. He says, in all my remembrance. And so he's thinking about them. He's praying for them. He's concerned for them. He longs for them. So this is no casual prayer. This is a continuous, ongoing focus prayer. Always in every prayer of mine for you all. So Paul was a man of prayer, constantly in conversation with God. And so prayer is just that, connecting with God. It's just talking to Jesus. And so he was in this constant state of communication with Jesus. He was communing with God. And when we do that, it binds our hearts closer to God. But when we pray for other believers and when we pray together with other believers, it binds our hearts together. And so prayer has a unifying effect. Prayer is unifying. It's very hard to be angry at someone that you are constantly praying for. 
It changes your heart towards them. It draws you closer to that person. And so we need to be a church that is marked by prayer because there is power in prayer. Which is why every worship gathering we spend some time in focused prayer. We pray together, either myself or one of our elders leads in a pastoral prayer, a prayer of petition where we are trying to focus and lead the whole faith family to really be communing with God. So it's a value in our worship gatherings. But we also have it as a value in our home groups. Every home group has a focused prayer time where we're praying for our church to be healthy, our church to be missional, and for the needs in that home group. And so we're focusing prayer in our home groups. We have a prayer ministry that meet every Monday evening, and they're praying for the needs of our church. There are prayer warriors. And they come early and they meet even Friday morning and they pray for the service. And so prayer is a, a value of this faith family. Why? Why is prayer so important? Verse 4, he says, making my prayer with joy. You show me someone who spends time in the presence of God in prayer. And I'll show you a person who has joy. You show me a person that is lacking joy, and I'll show you a person who is lacking in prayer. This is the way God has orchestrated it. We were made for him. We need him. We need to be close to him. We're desperate for him. And prayer is how your heart is closer to God. We pray because it brings us joy, brings us closer to Jesus. We are called to express our love for God and our love for other people, this fellowship through passionate prayer. Do you pray beyond for your meals and beyond the 911 prayers? Oh, Jesus, help me. Despite those, do you spend time in conversation with Jesus? This is what it looks like to be in fellowship. We have passionate prayer for each other. Number two, fellowship that displays the glory of God is partnership in the gospel. Partnering in the gospel. Verse 5, he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then in verse 7, he says, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So the heart, the essence of Christ-centered fellowship is the gospel. That is what unites us. That is what binds us. Because the gospel is what? Well, the gospel means good news. That's what the word means. And so gospel is the good news message. The message of what? It's the good news that God is saving people from their sin through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the praise of his name. That is the gospel. That is the message. It's a message of hope. And it's what allows someone to enter into the family of God, into the kingdom of God. And so as followers of Jesus, we are called to glorify him by making and developing disciples. Well, how do you do that? How do you accomplish the mission? With the gospel. That's what we use. So we proclaim the gospel, we treasure the gospel, and then we live out, we live our lives in light of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. 
So when someone who is spiritually dead and very far from God, when they hear the truth that they have sinned and that they are under the condemnation of God that they deserve, and when they hear that there is no hope, they have no hope to save themselves or reach heaven, that they're guilty. But then they also hear that there's good news, that God desperately loves him, and that God himself reached down to save that sinner, and that Jesus died in his place, endured his guilt and his shame, and died, but then was resurrected on the third day, proving that he is God and he is able and the grave could not hold him and he's victorious over sin and death itself and now forgiveness is offered freely to that sinner. And, and when that lost soul hears this and the Spirit brings them to life and they respond with complete trust in Jesus, turning away from their sin, that person is made new. They're made a new creation with a new heart they enter into the kingdom of God and now they have new desires to live for the glory of the resurrected king this is miraculous only God can do this this is the power of the gospel and God does this as we proclaim it and we make new disciples with the gospel but we also then grow and develop as disciples the same way so how do you make new disciples? With the gospel. How do you grow as a disciple? The gospel. The same gospel that regenerates the dead is the same gospel that sanctifies the living spiritually. We need the gospel, not just to get saved. You see, I think sometimes we think, oh, well, the gospel is elementary. That's just the basics. That's just the milk. And so someone comes to faith in Jesus and they get saved with the gospel. But then you get past the gospel and you progress to maturity and to more important things about following Jesus. Wrong. We never get past the gospel. Never. All we do is go deeper in it. You never graduate. You never get past it. You don't go on to better things. All you do is you know it more and you go deeper in it. This is so critical for our church to understand. We want to be a truly Christ-centered, gospel-centered church. Here's what our problem is as humans. We forget. We forget what we've been saved from. We can so easily forget. And as believers, we can then rely on our own morality, our own goodness to be, quote, good Christians, to continue so we think subtly that we were saved with the gospel, but now we pick up from there with our own strength to be a good person to stay saved. And that's just not true. That is work salvation. That is self-justification. That is trying to earn God's favor and salvation. That is not how it works at all. You are saved by grace. You will grow by grace, and you'll be glorified one day all by God's grace. It is all by God's grace beginning to end. And so the gospel reminds us of our extreme sin, which is why Jesus had to die. But the gospel also reminds us of God's extreme mercy 
and his extreme love. And we need both to grow. If you forget one or the other, you will not grow. You will not experience change. It's not possible. See, if you forget the weight of your sin, you know what happens? You won't change. You will see a need to change. You will stay blinded. You will blame everyone else. But you'll never be the problem. You'll never acknowledge errors that you need to change. You will justify yourself. You'll make excuses and minimize your sin. And so you're never going to change. So we have to remember the weight of our sin. It's the only way that will change. But if you don't feel the weight of God's mercy, you're going to be crushed under the weight of your sin. And you'll see it. You'll know it. You'll know you're a sinner. You can make a long list of all your problems. But you'll be, you'll be crushed under the weight of that sin if you don't feel the weight of the mercy of God. So you need both. You have to be aware of your great sin, but aware of God's great mercy. And this is what changes Believers. This is what saves the lost and sanctifies believers. We focus on the gospel every single day. So meditating on this gospel is the key to displaying the glory of God. Remembering your guilt and God's glory as revealed with mercy will change everything. Now I'll give you a lot of examples, but I just want to give you a few just to give you an idea of how this works in just your daily life how you apply this. So applying the gospel. And so let me give you an example from your relationships. We'll just start there. That, that's a good place to start because all of us have relationships. Whether you're married, single, it doesn't matter. We all have relationships. So for example, if you're married and your spouse is really annoying you. You don't have that experience? No? No hands. Very good. So if, if your spouse is making life difficult for you or for whatever reason you're having a conflict. When you remember the gospel, you remember that you've been forgiven. You remember that Jesus died for you, that you are guilty before God, and that Jesus saved you even though you did not deserve it. And so meditating on the gospel will remind you of how you have received mercy and forgiveness. And so now you're going to be more able to extend mercy and forgiveness to your spouse who maybe you think doesn't deserve it. Maybe they don't. But you don't deserve God's forgiveness either. And so humility and forgiveness and grace will permeate a relationship when the gospel is centered. What about your self-image, how you view yourself? Maybe you have insecurity and you struggle with that. Well, the gospel makes you confident because God's forgiven you. You belong to him. You're empowered by this spirit. He resurrected from the dead. He gives you power to overcome. And so you can walk in confidence and yet with humility, remembering that you're a sinner saved by grace. So it gives you a very healthy self-image. What about your holiness? Growing and being more like Christ. Without the gospel, all you have is moralism. And do good and earn it and do enough prayers and, and give away enough money and go to enough worship gatherings and do enough good to earn it. Well, that's not going to change you. Only God can change you. 
And so without the gospel, we're left with our own efforts. But the gospel says, no, God already made a way. Jesus already died for you. You're already accepted. Before God, you're already declared holy. You have that standing before him. You are justified. And so now you have the hope and the confidence to grow in your actual holiness. Not because you have to earn it, but because it's already been done for you. The gospel helps us grow in our holiness. What about suffering? What about if you're disappointed? If life is hard for you today, if, if, you're, if you're going through something so hard that it's hard to breathe at times, well, the gospel reminds you that Jesus suffered too. He suffered. And it was through suffering that he was then glorified and won our redemption. And so suffering is a normal part of our experience on this side of heaven. Jesus suffered too. He understands. He knows your pain. And he's using your suffering to transform you. By living out the gospel, we're able to live lives that are focused on his glory and that really display. But that's hard because all of us have hard times. And sometimes it's really challenging. And so in those moments, you need fellowship, other believers to come alongside of you and remind you of the gospel, remind you how God loves you and he has a purpose for you and he's not forsaken you. The gospel proves it. So we need other people in our lives, which is why in verse 7, Paul says, you are all partakers with me of grace. They're sharing in God's grace. It says, in my imprisonment. And so Paul was suffering in prison because he shared the gospel. And the church in Philippi was also suffering persecution. And so they had this in common. They, they were shared in this frustration, this difficulty. You see, sharing in the gospel means sharing in hard times. So in a church, this gospel that unites us, your pain is my pain. You send me a message or you call me that you're hurting, I feel it. I carry that. And my pain is your pain. I was in the hospital this week for two days. First time in my life been in the hospital. It was a terrible experience. Actually, it wasn't that bad. God was very good to me. People calling and visiting, it was overwhelming. Like, I need to sleep. Can you leave now? No, not really. It was awesome. Where my pain was the pain of my brothers and my sisters. People coming to walk the kids, wanting to come see me in the hospital, bringing meals. It's just, it's just been a remarkable month with Bonnie's own injury and maybe in the hospital this week. How we're living this out. And I have been just overwhelmed with the fellowship of this faith family. And how we share pain. We share sorrows. And we encourage and we love each other because we have this partnership in eternity partnership in this gospel because there are people that are so far from God who need to know the lost need to hear and so this gospel gives us unity in our diversity at church like ours that's so diverse so many cultural differences this gospel 
this love for Jesus and for those who don't know him, wanting to reach them, this is what unites us because there is this city to reach. And we need to be on mission to reach them. And so God-glorifying fellowship is passionate in prayer and is partnership in the gospel. Number three, it is purity in affection. So pure affection displays the glory of God in our fellowship. Verse 7, he says, it is right for me. So it is good. It is proper. So it is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because, he says, I hold you in my heart. Verse 8 and 9, he says, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all. With the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Do you hear his words? He's writing to his fellow brothers and sisters. And he says, I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus. And he says, that I pray that your love may abound more. That it may increase and multiply. See, love is more than just an emotion or a feeling. Love needs to be lived out. It's an action. Loving someone means that you place such a high value on that other person. Again, it's that you have such a high value for the other person that you're actively seeking what is best for them. That's what love is. That we so value each other that I care about your well-being more, and I'm actively seeking out your well-being more than my own comfort. Imagine if we had husbands who loved their wives like this. What kind of marriages would we have with husbands who cared about their wives' well-being so much more than any of their own comforts. Imagine a church where everyone in this room cared about the other person's well-being so much more than their own. And if all of us are actively seeking what is best for others, I mean, we would not be able to fit enough seats in this hall because we'd have people that felt so loved that they would just be pouring in. Because we're made for this. So this is how we're supposed to live. This is true affection. He says this love is marked by purity. He says this is right. So people of God are, are called to love one another in such a way that is pure, that lets love multiply and abound. And he says with the affection of Jesus. And so we actually are channels where God's love flows from us to other people. So we're expressing God's love to one another. This is remarkable that we get to be a part of this. This is a faith family. And so men in this room, we are called to treat the ladies of this fellowship with dignity, with honor, with respect. This is what we do. Men have this God-given desire to protect and to cherish women. It was so cool. Again, I was in the hospital this week. I mentioned that. And, and Bonnie was cooking dinner, and, and, and the gas tank ran out. And these two men from our church came straight to our house, and I was in the hospital, and, and they were just ecstatic 
to help my wife to get a new gas tank so she can cook dinner. And I was so moved that two brothers would see my wife as their sister and just wanted to help with letting her have what she needs to cook a meal. That is what this church is about. Pure affection, treating each other as brothers and sisters and expressing our love to one another. Do you, as Paul says, do you hold the people of this church in your heart? Do you yearn for the people of this church with the affection of Jesus Christ? Do people in this room know you? Are you known? I mean, really known. Because how are we going to long for you if we don't know you? And how can you long for others if you're not engaged in their lives? Are you living this way? Are you really a part of the life of this church? Or do you just kind of show up on a Friday morning and then just leave? You show up because music is awesome, the preaching is whatever, and then you leave. No. We ought to desire pure affection from other believers and to share God's love. And so church membership is one way that you commit. This is important. Or we have home groups where you can have people in your life. Or we have discipleship groups. You can have people even more intense than just three or four people of the same gender. We have the opportunities. You just have to sign up and be a part of it. That's the point. We display God's glory as we express this affection for each other. Why do we do this? John 1335, Jesus says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The world will believe our message if we love one another. So the lost souls of Abu Dhabi and the glory of God is at stake in how we love each other. And so fellowship that displays God's glory is marked by passionate prayer, Partnership in the gospel, purity in affection. Lastly, as we close, it is marked by progress in Christ-likeness. So progressing in Christ-likeness. That's another mark of God-glorifying fellowship. Verse 6. It says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's awesome. He began the work, and he'll complete it. So our God is faithful. And so one day, all of us who trust Jesus will stand before our king after the resurrection, and we'll stand there clothed in his righteousness, wearing white robes that signify purity, will be perfect, holy, glorified, resurrected, and we will see him as he is, and all of your deepest desires will be fulfilled, not the evil ones, your desire for Jesus, for purity, for holiness, for his presence. Those desires are going to be fulfilled and you will be right there with him. He's going to complete it. He promised we can trust him. But until that day comes, he has promised that he will help us through spirit. He, we will progress in Christ-likeness. We will be sanctified, grow in our holiness and displaying his character. And so believers 
as we trust Jesus, we will grow. We will overcome our, our sinful patterns. We will forgive those who hurt us. We'll extend mercy to those who don't deserve it. We will serve others sacrificially. We will give generously. We do all of these things not to earn anything, but because God's loved us and we're changed. And so we will reflect the character of Jesus, not based on our ability, but because of the power of God. He is faithful. He began the work. He is going to accomplish it. And he does it through fellowship. He doesn't do it individually. He does it as a group. Which is why the last few verses, verses 9, 10, and 11, describe Paul's prayer on abounding in love. And it describes changed lives. It's practical and it's visible. So he says, Knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so fellowship leads to knowledge and discernment and approving what is good and excellent. So those that are progressing, those that have Christ-honoring fellowship will make wiser choices. We do less boneheaded things. Why? Because we have brothers and sisters saying, maybe you shouldn't do that. There's someone saying, have you thought about that, Pastor? Have you prayed about that one? Because I, I don't know about that decision. But when, we, when you're on your own, you're just on your own. We need other people to help us to grow, to have wisdom led by this Spirit. You can't do this alone. And he says, then you can be pure and blameless. So it will walk in purity and not offend other people. So this blameless means they're not offending others. And so we walk in more purity and holiness when we walk together with others. And he says in verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Isn't that what you want? If you're a believer in Jesus, don't you want to be filled with the fruit of righteousness? To reflect the righteous character of God? To bear good fruit for Jesus? How is this possible? He says that this, this progress, it says comes through Jesus Christ. This comes through Jesus. So we must spend time in the presence of Jesus, looking to him, being reminded of the gospel, in prayer, through his word, the presence of God, through Jesus is how these changes, the fruit of righteousness comes to be. Are you progressing? Do you feel stuck in your spiritual life? There are no shortcuts. You can't rush it. Just like, have you ever tried to rush sleep? It doesn't work, does it? There's no shortcuts. It has to happen naturally. It's the same thing with growing spiritually. You can't, you can't rush healing. You can't rush growth or heart change. No shortcuts. You can't rush it. It has to happen naturally. How does it happen? It comes through Jesus Christ. We focus on him, and it happens. But if you're feeling stuck, is it possible that that's happening to you because you're forgetting one of the most important ways that God grows believers? Other people, 
Maybe you forgot about fellowship. Oh, you can't do this alone. We need accountability. It's the only way that this will happen. Again, while we have home groups, discipleship groups, because this is critical. You need other people. Do you truly want to change? I mean that. If you do, you can't do it alone. Verse 11 ends, I love the final phrase as we wrap up. To the glory and praise of God. This is why we have this partnership, this fellowship, to the glory and praise of God. Our purpose for existing is right here, to the glory and praise of God. And so we have fellowship. It exists by God's design so that we can help one another reflect the glory of God. And so this kind of fellowship is marked by prayer, partnership, purity, and progress in following Jesus. This is what we're about. This is what our church is. And so if you're a guest, I want you to know, full disclosure, this is who we are. And we would love for you to be a part of it. I'm excited. I love this faith family. I'm in. I'm all in to follow Jesus with these people. And there's no other people on this planet that I want to follow Jesus with than those in this room right now. Are you in? Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We worship you alone. We draw near to you. There's nowhere else to go. You are the source of hope and joy and life. And you have saved us and you have saved us as a people. We belong to you as your community, as your family. And we thank you that we can follow you together. We just yearn to know you and, and to help others to know you as well. We want to display your glory as a church, and we know that we can't do this alone. So help us to be committed to you, committed to each other, and to your son's mission. May our hearts beat fast to be increasingly growing disciples and as we make new ones for you. We praise you and we thank you for this privilege. In the name of our first love, Jesus.